0: hero and yet they were experiencing social ostracism because of their lifestyle change they knew economic hardship due to loss of income they experienced religious pressures because of the prevalent pagan idolatry and they knew the meaning of rejection and misunderstanding in their families because of Jesus Christ These are the same kinds of subtle pressures and quiet sufferings which all godly Christians endure from time to time. We learn in verse 17 that suffering is in the first place sure. He says, if indeed we suffer with him. The idea is that it is an assumption. The if is not actually a doubt. It's an assumption that we will suffer with him. If, as is the case, we suffer with Him, is Paul's thought here. Suffering is sure. But notice also that suffering is shared. We suffer with Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he said to them, For it is graciously given, for Christ's sake, that you might suffer with Him. And not only believe on Him, but that you might suffer with Him. That, too, is the gracious gift of God, an honor, the highest privilege that we can have is that we might endure suffering because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our suffering is shared with Christ, and he says that our suffering is significant because it leads to glory. Just as surely as travail leads to childbirth, so suffering leads to glory. Not a meritorious kind of glory, a suffering rather, do we endure, but a preparatory suffering. Our suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, is not even worthy to be compared to the sufferings we have now. He says that glory is so great, it is so majestic. It is so awesome to consider that it's not even worthy to put into the same scales with the little bit of temporal suffering that we have in this world. Our suffering is sure. Our suffering is shared. Our suffering is significant. And whether our suffering be because we are Christians or we suffer the kinds of disappointments, hardships, uncertainty, and pain that all people know, In the midst of our suffering, we sometimes forget what God has in store for us in the future. That failure to remember causes us to lose a sharp spiritual focus so that we can develop a spiritual myopia, a short-sightedness, so that we lose the longer, more distant view of things. I hope as we look at this text tonight that We will have an eye check, that we will check our distant vision, perhaps sharpen our focus as we consider the culmination of God's calling in our lives, the glory which is to come. Now, this was on Paul's mind. This was not something that he wrote about without thought. He says in verse 18, For I consider, I reckon, he says. Paul is saying, after careful thought, After having given this a great deal of prayerful introspection, he says, this is my fixed conclusion. What is that, Paul? That the present time and the suffering that we have now is not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. He says here that we should consider the coming glory that we will have with Jesus Christ and two truths about it. The first truth about the coming glory is that it is the hope of creation. In verses 19 through 22, the Apostle gives us a paragraph regarding what is sometimes called cosmic soteriology. It is a word about the salvation of the cosmos, the universe that God has created. He explains to us that the universe, that the creation, is right now suffering. It is suffering because of Adam's sin. We know this from Genesis chapter 3. He says in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to futility. The word futility here comes from a verb that means to seek without finding anything. The idea in the Word is that it involves an inability to reach a goal, a coming short of achieving one's potential. It's a frustration. He says that the creation around us, both animate and inanimate, is frustrated. It is experiencing futility. And that because of no fault of its own. It has been brought down to that point of frustration by God Himself. The creation originally given to Adam was a creation that was perfect. As you and I look around today and we see the suffering of animals, we see the depletion of resources, we observe the imbalance of natural forces. The pollution of our ecology, the extinction of some kinds of life. As we observe all of that, we have to realize that that exists because of our sin. The perfect creation was brought down and subjected to all of that travail and suffering and futility because of the sin of humankind. You say, well, why did God do that? Why did God bring the creation down when Adam fell into sin? Well, the answer to that is he did it so that man might still be able to have a certain rule over it. You see, the environment was made to fit a fallen king. He says that the creation now groans. It waits eagerly, he says in verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. That subjection to futility was one that was made in hope. The creation itself will one day share in redeemed mankind's deliverance from sin. Eventually, There will be a transformation in the creation corresponding to the Christian's redemption. He says in verse 2 that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. That very same verb is used by God in the text here regarding the creation. It is eagerly looking forward to its own liberation... Its own freedom from the futility to which it has been subjected by God. It longs for that day. It is anticipating eagerly the freedom that is known by God's dear children. Say, so when will that be? Well the answer to that is, during the millennium. In Acts 3:21, it is called the period of restoration of all things Jesus refers to it in Matthew 19:28 as the regeneration. In the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the creation itself will experience the liberation for which it longs now. Ultimately, God will fashion it anew into a new heaven and a new earth. But understand that the creation that was made good now groans as it, too, eagerly awaits the coming glory. The coming glory is the hope of creation. But secondly, it is the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian. The Apostle says in verse 23, not only does the creation grow, as though it were in childbirth, but he says, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Notice that he is speaking to those who have what he calls the first fruits of the Spirit. Most of you probably know, but it bears repeating. The first fruits is a term, a biblical term, that was drawn from agriculture in that day. It referred to the first of the harvest, it was the first cutting the first pieces of fruit the first evidence that the harvest was now ripened and it was the pledge of all that was to come there was a feast in israel called the feast of first fruits at that time at the beginning of harvest they were to go into their barley fields and to cut down sheaves of barley to bring that then to the temple and to wave it before the lord that was a an offering of first fruits what it symbolized was that just as they presented the first fruits to the Lord, they recognized that all of the harvest also belonged to him. Now, this term first fruits is used in the New Testament of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1520, it says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's the first of his kind in his resurrection body and he represents what all of us will one day be who belong to him he is the first fruits of that resurrection the term is also used of christians for example james 1:18 says in the exercise of his god's will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be as it were the first fruits among his creatures, so we are called the first fruits, the first of the harvest which is to come. In 1 Corinthians sixteen fifteen, it is said of the household of Stephanus that they were the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, Paul is saying that they were among his first converts in that province, and now there were going to be others saved, like the household of stephanus They were the firstfruits. Again, the word is used in Revelation 14.4 of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each tribe. And it says, these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. The 144,000 are saved and sealed at the beginning of the tribulation period as representatives of the greater harvest to come of both Jew and Gentile who will be saved in those years when God's judgment is poured out upon the earth. <clears throat> now here, in Romans chapter 8, the word firstfruits is used of the Holy Spirit. It calls the Holy Spirit the first fruits. What does that mean? It means that He is given to us as a guarantee... Of the future glory that is to come. He has brought to us now a foretaste of glory divine, as Fanny Crosby wrote in the hymn Blessed Assurance. But He is only the first fruits of that glory to come. He guarantees to us that we will participate one day in the fullness of that which now we have only tasted and enjoyed. He is called a pledge, a similar concept in 2 Corinthians one twenty-two: God also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge, he says. Or in Ephesians one thirteen and 14, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. One of the reasons that I am so convicted and assured about the security of the believer is the fact that God has already given to us a down payment, an assurance, a pledge that one day we will receive the fullness of the salvation that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us as the first fruits. But we groan, he says. Now the groaning that we have is not one of pain. There is occasionally that kind of groaning too. But the groaning he has in mind here is the same kind of groaning that is in nature. It is the groaning of anticipation. It is the groaning of expectation the looking forward to of that glory that is to come the full inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ will be the revelation of Christ and our being made like him which involves what he calls in verse 23 the redemption of our body there he's referring to that consummating act of our salvation When our physical bodies will be changed from their lowly form at present to be like Christ's body of glory. You and I are saved in anticipation of that. Our gospel is a gospel of hope. We don't yet see it. I don't see it. If we would see it, it would not be hope, he points out. No, it's for this hope that we don't now see, but we anticipate that we have been saved. And it's toward the assurance that we will receive it, that we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. Paul is telling us here that the future glory is so full and so complete that it cannot be fully experienced in the bodies that we have. Our bodies have to be changed so that we then can experience the glory that is to come. Dr. Leslie Allen writes, The salvation given at conversion has implicit in it promises which have yet to be fulfilled. Contrary experience may now bombard the believer's senses, but it cannot reasonably invalidate his glorious hope Because its fulfillment essentially lies in the future. We are the children of God right now, make no mistake about that. We have eternal life at this moment. But, beloved, we are primarily a people of the future. We are not a people of this world, we are a people of a world that is to come. We are the first fruits of His creation. I don't know all that that means. I don't know all that God is going to create in that new heaven and new earth. But whatever it is, it is so wonderful that words in this book could not express it all. And you and I have all of that in store. We will share in that coming glory. It is not small. It is not imaginary. It is very real. And it is so... Humongous that God cannot possibly put into one book all that it contains. That is the hope of the Christian, the glory that is to come. He says we eagerly wait with perseverance. How is it that we eagerly wait with perseverance? How, practically speaking, can we do that? Sometimes life gets tough. We go through sufferings, whether physical or emotional or persecution. And we wonder, when's this glory going to come? And we say with the psalmist of old, Oh Lord, how long? How long? How is it that we wait eagerly in perseverance? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts about that. If we're going to wait eagerly with patience, we need to, number one, reckon our sufferings like Paul did. To see that we are going to suffer in this world, they're sure. To see that they're shared, that Christ suffers with us. He knows our pain that we pass through. And to see that our, our suffering is significant, we have to keep that in mind. As you compute all of the factors of your life and you see the hardship and the heartache and the disappointments, keep all of that in mind. It's sure that you're going to suffer in this world. Don't be surprised by it. But Christ shares it with you and it's significant because it's working in you. An exceeding eternal weight of glory. The best is yet to come for you. It's passing. Suffering must precede glory. Reckon your suffering like Paul did. Secondly, be diligent in your ministry to others. When you and I are passing through suffering, it helps us to keep busy ministering to other people. Keep before ourselves the fact that when Christ comes, we will one day stand at His Bema seat. And we have an intense desire that when we stand there before Him on that day, that we might receive a full reward and not be robbed of any of it by carelessness and sloppiness. And unfaithfulness in this world. And so, as you and I pass through this world and we eagerly wait with patience, let's keep in mind that second thought. I want to be diligent in my ministry to others because when I stand before Christ, I want a full reward. And then, thirdly, if I want to wait eagerly with patience, I must stay in the Word. I must stay in the Word of God to give me perspective. Of what life is all about. If I don't, I'm liable to end up like Elijah did and get discouraged and think I'm all by myself. We forget our focus. And so I need to keep myself in the Word of God. Are you keeping yourself in the Word? And finally, if you and I are going to eagerly wait with perseverance, then we need to develop a romance with Jesus Christ. And keep that romance strong. We must not allow the flame of devotion to burn low in our lives. We must preserve it. Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What does he mean? He means... In essence this I'll paraphrase it. Keep yourselves in love with God. That's what he's saying. Make sure that your heart beats with a passion for Jesus Christ. Don't allow yourself to become a spiritual adulterer or adulteress. Don't allow anyone or anything else take his spot the spot of first love, the spot of preeminence in your life. I want to tell you that if you'll do those things, if you'll reckon your suffering like Paul did, if you'll be diligent in your ministry to others, if you'll stay in the Word to keep your perspective, if you'll develop a romance with Jesus Christ, then you will also eagerly wait with patience the glory that is to come. One of my favorite hymns talks about the glory that is to come. It's one that I'd like you to sing with me. If you'll take your hymnal. All of creation would join you in singing that. Because the creation around us us tonight groans with eager anticipation for this day. When Christ will come and give us glory. Beloved, let our hearts, too, eagerly anticipate his coming. Eagerly anticipate it with patience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will tonight, above every other concern of life, every other goal, every other motive, will have this as number one. Eagerly anticipating the coming glory. Lord, remind us as we pass through the battlefield of life, as we walk through the pilgrimage on this earth, that the best, the glory, is yet to come. And may we be willing to suffer whatever you call us to suffer. that we might one day realize the fullness of glory. May we faithfully serve you here that we might not be robbed of any reward on that day when we stand before your Bema seat. Cause our hearts, I pray, as we go from this service and through this week to beat with anticipation and longing for your coming and the glory that comes with you. We pray this in your blessed name, keeping in view and in focus your blessed hope and your return. Amen. Good night.